Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University at Texarkana. This is our first episode. Um, the way I kind of see this podcast going forward is that uh, there'll either be a film that myself or a special guest has not seen. Sometimes maybe both of us haven't seen it. And we're going to kind of hash through um, one of these canonical films. We've even discussed, in many cases, if they are deserving of being canonized. Um, a film that we think we should have seen and we feel guilty or a certain amount of shame for not having seen it and kind of owning that shame and having a productive discussion about it. For my first episode, I'm having on Michael Dwyer, um, an associate professor of, me of media commu and communication at Arcadia University. Uh, Michael teaches courses in film and media studies, and you'll quickly find out in just a moment why I've asked him to speak about Blue Collar with me. He's the author of Back to the 50s and is currently working on a manuscript titled Tinsel and Rust, Hollywood Film and Post-Industrial America, hence the tie to Blue Collar. So let's all welcome Michael. What got you into movies? Your, your path to studying cinema is quite different than my own. So can you tell the audience a little bit about what brought you to eventually studying it? Uh, well, that's interesting because it's sort of two different questions, right? Um, what brought me into movies was uh, pirated cable. Uh, my dad, uh, back when I was seven years old, like we got one of those giant satellite dishes in, through some way that I'm sure was not legitimate. And I remember having, like, this is back in the day when you got this giant book and you could just dial in, like, russian satellites and like watch what was on the news in russia uh or watch basketball games and see what the commentators were saying um during the commercial breaks and things um so we always had some sort of like fell off the back of a truck cable setup growing up so like when pay-per-view cable happened we just had all those pay-per-view cable channels running all the time so i must have watched like the summer when i was 14 i must have watched like the fifth element like 800 times um and so uh, just watching tons of movies on cable is how i just uh got into just knowing about movies but i never thought the the other way of sort of uh direction of that question is how you get into studying movies and that for me came much much later i thought um as an undergraduate uh, and even into applying to graduate school, I thought I was going to study uh, 20th century American literature. Um, and it wasn't until really I got into graduate programs where I was uh, a like being exposed to cultural studies okay. um, that film never became a subject to study for me. I never wrote a paper about a film until I was in my master's program. Um, I, in my master's program, I took a video art course, uh, and I, and that's the first time I ever wrote about like visual images. And Which, then what did you write about? Uh, uh, Sadie Benning, who's a video artist. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. She, um, I, my pixel first vision ever camera, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I wrote about, I think, I think there were two seminar papers in that course. I wrote about Sadie Benning and one in her relationship with music. 
Um, and then I wrote maybe about like Nandrin Pak or Dan Graham or something in the other. I don't remember. I remember it just being uh, mind blowing. Like I'd never seen video art before. Um, but yeah, and then it, it was wasn't until I got to my PhD program where I still thought I was going to write about like adolescence and American literature and the sort of notion of uh, the so like, symbolic nature of adolescence. That's what I thought I was going to do. It wasn't until I started at Syracuse and I took a course with Stephen Cohan on Hitchcock and just realized the best work I will do here, I will do with this person. So, you know, starting essentially with my PhD exams, that's when I started like a film education. It was my first ever Hollywood film class. And I decided this is okay. So I'll work with this person. That's interesting. So I, my, my exposure was a little different. Um, yeah, so I had always kind of enjoyed watching movies, and in the summer between my 8th grade and freshman year of high school, my appendix broke and I was misdiagnosed, and uh, so it took him like three weeks to figure out my appendix was broken and I was probably slowly dying, and during that time was when uh, the AFI put out their first 100 years, 100 movies list, and I remember I was like sitting on the couch feverish watching this thing. And I was like, man, there are all these movies I haven't seen. And I'm like, I'm sick. I, I should check some of these out. So eventually I was admitted to the hospital. And I was in there for like three weeks. So I kept sending my parents to the local um, public library. And they would pick out, you know, that's how I watched Citizen Kane for the first time. And Psycho. And so throughout high school, I was still watching a lot of movies. And, you know, like the kind of entry-level kind of bro stuff that, you know, like Tarantino movies and mm -hmm. Memento, that kind of stuff, uh, Fight Club. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to college and I'm going to be a film critic because I didn't even know there was, like, such a thing as, like, film professors that, like, write about movies. So I was like, I'm either going to become a film critic or I'm going to go into production. And at UW-Milwaukee, you're kind of expected to do both, or at least you were. So I was doing 16-millimeter production classes. That's how I know who Sadie Benning is because it's very video art heavy, very experimental. Mm -hmm. So you're watching, like, Stan Brackage and stuff. And the more production I did the more I realized I didn't really have the temperament to work with other people. Um, you know, just like having your schedule at the... Just just being... Your, your whole schedule is determined by other people, so people dropping out or not showing up. And I was just like, yeah, this is this is too much work for me. And uh, while I was writing for the, the local newspaper, I started to see those film critic jobs kind of drying up. And my, my wife will tell you that, like, I think it was like sophomore or junior year of college I was talking to one of my professors, Ben Snyder, who writes about American independent film. And I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to do this professor thing. I'm, I'm going to go out and do this. And like, you know, some people kind of gave me that like pat on the head, like, yeah, that, that's cute, man. Like come back in like <laughs> 10 years and let me know how that works. But uh, yeah, my wife always kind of jokes about it. Like, yeah, you actually, you said it and uh, yeah, you, you did it. But yeah, it's a, it's a strange, strange path that, that brings us to uh, academia. Yeah, well, I started uh, I started my undergraduate career as a marine science major at the University of Miami. I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I I was just I was born in Massachusetts, and I had all these memories about uh, uh, like going to the aquarium as a kid and just being fascinated with it. But when I was nine years old, I moved to the Pittsburgh area. Um, but I just had that memory of like this is what I'm interested in. And I followed that essentially until I was 18. Uh, 
and enrolled in a like top class marine science school. And I realized all the other kids who felt that way at nine had continued to learn marine science. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was, I was, I worked in the marine science department, um, and like did their, um, I did their website. I uh, looked over grant proposals for them and things like that. And I realized I was all of the things that I thought were fascinating about marine science, the field work and the research and the experimentation, I was just terrible at. And all the things that I thought were boring, like the lab work, writing grant proposals, all that stuff, those were the things where I was actually useful. Um, So I decided, well, what am I good at and enjoy? And I just, well, I like my English classes, so I'll just stay there. And then I applied to the master's program at Carnegie Mellon in literary and cultural studies, not really knowing much about it. And they somehow let me in. And uh, and I so I, when I got to that program, I was exposed to cultural studies as a methodology about just not thinking about a particular period of literature or a particular genre or medium or whatever. And... Um, that's that's how I made my way to film studies was like just through method rather than uh, canon or fields or directors or even like are you I mean I I would say I I liked going to the movies but I don't think I was like a cinephile. That's a that's a great transition point because the next question I have is um, what's your greatest oversight when it comes to seeing films that you feel like you should have seen? And we can discuss canonization if you want. I know there's benefits, there's pros and cons, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure you're probably like me in kind of one of those positions where you find it useful to a point and then it just becomes kind of arbitrary. But yeah, what would you say your biggest blind spot is with regard to what we well, study? It's funny that you mentioned the AFI list because when um, you told me uh, about the idea behind this show, I went and looked at that AFI list. Like, oh, let me look to see. And oh my goodness, there's so much I've <laughs> seen on those lists. Like, and I'm particularly, um, and there's a degree to which uh, I do feel um, that there is a gap in my knowledge because of I'm sort of like a solipsistic American. So looking at that AFI list at the Curacao, at the Fellini, at the Bergman, at the Antonioni, it's there. My coverage of that is very sparse. I watched a bunch of French new wave films a few years ago because my wife and I teach a class that goes to France, um, basically every other year. And I just wanted to get French in my ears. Um, but other than that, uh, uh, my my knowledge of non-American film is 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 quite poor. Um, and then in terms of Hollywood films, uh, I don't know much about westerns. Um, and I kind of maybe that's a project some some summer. I'll just watch a bunch of westerns. See, I, see, those are those are two genres that I kind of overlooked were westerns and musicals, and I never really doubled back to musicals, which I know really rankles some of my senior colleagues because you know to them <laughs> one of the purest manifestations of American cinema is the musical. Whereas westerns, I I wasn't a huge fan, um, but when I started dating my wife, my father-in-law. Um, Larry, he was a huge Western fan, and he hated me because he just hated the idea of someone dating his daughter. There was nothing particular about me 
Um, but I was like, man, if I'm going to crack this nut, I got to have some sort of common ground with him. So I spent like maybe a month watching, you know, a bunch of John Ford movies, you know, the, the baselines, like the searchers stagecoach. I didn't go much deeper than, um, maybe 10 movies, you know, it's good, the bad and the ugly, the, the dollars trilogy. But, uh, yeah, as, as time goes on, I get more and more into Westerns and I appreciate them more. I just got this Randolph Scott, Bud Bedecker set. And it was, they're all like 70 minutes long. Some of them are Elmore Leonard adaptations, and they're, they're really lean and mean. So there's, there's something pretty efficient and interesting when you watch like that period between Peck and Paw, who I don't particularly enjoy that much, or at least the ones I've seen. Uh, I haven't seen Pat Garrett, um, but, you know, I, I'd be more towards the Leone Ford side of the equation, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun kind of catching up on that stuff, and I will have to eventually, hopefully through this podcast, um, start to watch more westerns. Right. Well, but allow musicals. me to make a pitch for covering the musical as well, because sure, musicals yeah. is one <laughs> musicals is one uh, uh, is one genre that I think you know my grandmother studied music in college in the '40s, and like sang like. Uh, uh, Sound of Music songs and things like that, play the piano. And uh, so musicals are, are a genre that I very, very, very much enjoy. And then um, studying with Steve Cohan, I, I got quite quite a lot of musical exposure as well. So, um, but it's funny that, like, See, that's I was. So I was the other way around. I was a band kid, and I was in all of these pit bands for musicals. And so I did the live theater version of them. But, oh, yeah, I when it came things. to actually, yeah, when it came to actually watching them, I was like, Man, I can't listen to West Side Story. I mean, I've seen West Side Story, but it was sure. one of those things where it's just like I can't do that experience again. It was just like months and months of playing the same five songs or whatever. <laughs> I just kind of kind of split at the seams with it. But what would you suggest for uh, folks who haven't seen musicals? What are like two or three that you would um, so you can't miss? Well, I mean, for me, I mean, it's unescapable sort of canonicity of singing in the rain, but it's amazing. It's so good. It's, um, I also really love the bandwagon. Um, and then I'm, I've become more and more interested in these sort of eighties, not musical musicals. So, uh, footloose flash dance. Um, uh, those I think are very interesting in the ways that, um, music becomes a sort of like organizing stylistic principle. Um, and it's drawing from, you know, classical musicals, but it's all also drawing inspiration from like MTV and things like that. Um, so that's a, that's an ongoing, uh, interest and even something like baby driver, um, thinking, thinking of baby driver as a musical, uh, to me, opens up new ways of understanding, like what the musical is and how it works with genre, et cetera, et cetera. No, absolutely. No, Bandwagon is is fantastic. That's one of the, I'd say one of the deeper cuts that I've seen, and it's not even that particularly deep. But I right. still remember. I can't remember the actor's name who plays the Orson Welles theater director, who's just extremely pompous in his you know vision for the the theater and they're all just kind of rolling their eyes at him i think it's the same guy who played the, dir- the director in singing in the rain too I, I can't remember his name uh i should know his name and i don't <laughs> um but he's wonderful and the and the i i don't know i maybe it's from watching the muppet show when i was little or something but the sort of like 
vaudeville uh, jokes like um, that are in the lyrics, like when they describe um, the plot of Oedipus as when a chap meets his father and causes or kills his father and causes a lot of bother. That to me is hilarious. I will always laugh at jokes like that. Uh, when a prince and a king meet and everyone ends in mincemeat as Hamlet. That's, oh, that's right. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch that one again. So a bit of a pivot. Um, let's talk a little bit about Blue Collar. So I thought I would summarize the plot really broadly for our audience. If anyone hasn't seen it, I can't imagine you would be listening to this if you have not seen it. Um, because there's obviously going to be some spoilers. Um, but essentially the plot is it's this kind of heist movie with labor at its core. We have three characters. We have Zeke, played by Richard Pryor, Smokey, uh, played by Yafet Koto, and Jerry, played by Harvey Keitel. And they're all working on an automotive line, and they're kind of feeling a financial pinch, right? They all have different obligations in their life. Richard Pryor is found... Uh, it's found out that he's basically been cheating the IRS on his uh, deductions. Uh, Jerry needs to buy new braces for his daughter. I'm trying to remember Smokey. Does he owe somebody money? He owes a. It, it's it, the it's a loan shark. Yeah, that's he what owns, I thought. Yeah, he owns a loan shark some money. So they're they're kind of negotiating with the union and trying to make things worth work. And they they are in favor of their union, but as the film goes on, they become disillusioned with different steps that the union takes in protecting their best interests from um, the pretty cutthroat management on the line, and they decide to rob the union. They break in, and they find out that the money that they had expected to be there is missing, and in its in, in lieu of it, they find a ledger that has um, outstanding loans to organized crime and that there are ties between organized crime and the union. And as the film kind of goes on, it, it goes from being this kind of comedy about the working class to a bit of a bit of kind of a heist comedy there's this great moment where the three of them have these halloween masks on hilarious they, they can't yeah because they can't afford it it made me think of baby driver actually with austin powers masks where they have the the googly eyes and all that on. right and then uh and then it really does a severe pivot into much more of like a almost conspiracy theory thriller towards the end when uh, one of the characters ends up dead uh, so that's a really broad uh, plot summary is there anything that I may have missed that you can think would be important to uh, the discussion we're going to have or any points you want to make well I would say that um, it's an interesting film uh, in its kind of tone um, mm-hmm. and in that it is um, <clears throat> It's a film that is in which the characters are continually expressing their um, their desire to believe in institutions, and but also like not being able to reconcile that desire to believe in their their institutions with their knowledge of those institutions. And so, for me, it feels like a very '70s kind of movie um, in its in its sort of mood and its attitude. Um, and so while it's funny at points, it's also um, mournful in a, in a kind of way. Um, there's, and, you know, we can talk, I think we probably will, about um, some of the behind-the-scenes sort of things that led to it. But there's that uh, scene, there are moments where it's very still. And the scene where at the, par- at the night after the party, when all three characters are, are really sort of confiding this misery they have, 
And, um, and in that moment, in those moments, it, it can be very deeply sad. No, that's, that's very true. Um, before we start to talk a bit about that, because I feel like that ties into what makes Paul Schrader um, an auteur in certain ways, are those moments of stillness. Um, so the, what made me pick this film is Ava DuVernay had confessed on Twitter that she hadn't seen it, and she got a lot of shit for it. And uh, it made me think about, like, is Blue Collar something that should be canonized? Yeah. Is it something that, like, the expectation, I don't know, for... I, I found it kind of silly that people were so kind of rankled that she hadn't seen it. I'm like, it's kind of a deep cut. You can't get it on DVD very easily here. Um, yeah, it's Paul Schrader, but it's not Taxi Driver or Raging Bull or Hardcore. You know, it's it's certainly admired by fans of Paul Schrader and fans of 70s film, but there are all these logistical reasons for it not being, you know, I, I, I just kind of, thought it was silly that people were trying to shame her for seeing it so what are we, what are our thoughts on blue collar being in a canon or if there should be a canon or anything briefly on that point what do you think well i would i would say that it seems as though and i think one of the reasons why i think this this idea of yours this for this show is really valuable because i think that uh there's a way in which um film discussions on Twitter are always going to end up in these, oh, I can't believe you haven't seen this. You can't be serious if you haven't seen this. And I think it's probably also particularly for the case for like a woman of color, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, who's, who's got some degree of sort of prestige and success now. And then all every like terrible, like uh, Reddit troll on t with a Twitter account is going to say like, oh, see, she's a fraud. Right. Um, uh, so that's a, uh, I mean, I think Blue Collar is a great movie, but I, I, I'm shocked to feel that anybody or to, I'm shocked at the idea that anybody would think that it's some sort of like foundational text that anybody might have, and you should expect anybody working in film to have seen. And I think there was like a article in The Ringer a few, a few weeks ago about, hey, Blue Collar, it's a good movie. People should dig it out. Like That that was my my association with Blue Collar. I think that was even the link she had shared and been, she had said something along oh, really? the lines of like, I need to see this movie because of yeah. this article. And it was like, yeah, just endless amounts of, you know, shame that she had to feel for it. And I, of course, I had just seen it for the first time, like right before I saw First Reformed, maybe three weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is a great movie. But yeah, there's there's reasons that this is not exactly at the top of the heap and a lot of them just have to do with availability i mean you can rent it on amazon but like the high quality there was a really good dvd of it i was looking to try and find uh by anchor bay that has a commentary with schrader and maitland mcdonough and that's out of print and there's a blu-ray that's done through um the british label indicator who does really fantastic work and normally 99.9 percent .9 of the time their work is region-free, so you can buy it in the U.S. and play it. But unfortunately, Blue Collar is one of the few titles they've licensed that uh, that was not. And of course, it had all of those great, you know, special features like the commentary and some other retrospective interviews. So yeah, it's to me, it's kind of one of those films lost in time. But it is also when we look and think about what the cinema of the '70s is, I think you hit it kind of right on the head, where you said there's something. There's something passing. There's this want. There's this desire to be optimistic in institutions, but like Chinatown, it's about these characters who are just pulled down and disillusioned by the end of it and completely lost. 
Yeah, and I think it would be interesting to, I should have done this, uh, but it'd be interesting that it's not a film, both because probably of its mood and um, I would guess because two of its three major stars are black, um, it didn't have, not that in my memory, a a large circulation on cable. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I saw Chinatown on HBO or Cinemax or whatever, um, and thought, wow, like what a, like I had never seen a movie like that before. I don't know. And, you know, I don't, I can't imagine like the TBS cut of blue collar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, so I, I wonder to what degree these sort of like touchstone movies, um, like, so, you know, TNT will play the Godfather every year or something like that. I'm just thinking about my exposure to movies in the 90s as on cable television and how blue collar for probably political reasons or maybe industrial reasons just was like not in that cycle. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And even just how much, yeah, how different it would be watching that film on cable. I mean, I so often have that experience where I've watched something finally on home video that I saw on Comedy Central as a kid and I'm like wow this movie's like a lot different half of it was awesome. <laughs> um so that brings me kind of the to the next question um how do we how would we define what a Paul Schrader film is if we start to look at this as an auteur film is that even productive because in certain ways so much of our understanding of Paul Schrader at least for kind of more cinema 101 folks is through martin scorsese so we have certain tropes like religion that we definitely see in the the scorsese films like raging bull and taxi driver tied to masculinity and violence this kind of cleansing ritual um of course the the hero in hardcore is i think he's quaker or calvinist i can't remember what george c scott is but he identified was calvinist yeah i i that's why that's why i thought it was George C. Scott was Calvinist as well because it was fairly autobiographical because it starts off in hmm. Michigan too. Um, right. Yeah, and he goes to, of course, try to track down his lost daughter. Um, and then you have his kind of, at least in terms of theory, what he's known for is his book on transcendental aesthetics on Ozu and Dreyer, which means this kind of emphasis, I haven't read it yet because I've been waiting on my copy of the new edition from <laughs> Amazon, um, which is why I got it. So fess up there with regard to a blind spot with my reading. But uh, my understanding when I got to see him at SCMS a couple of years ago when he spoke about it is there's this emphasis on dead time and how dead time brings out a rumination in the spectator. And I was trying to think of these kind of different themes, religion, masculinity, and violence, and and slowness and stillness in Blue Collar. And it's interesting as an auteur piece, because you, you don't get much religion in it. There's a bit of the masculinity kind and of. violence. Yeah. You know, the uh, the kind of interplay between the different guys, the especially the scene you were talking about, where they all go to... Uh, Smokey's house. I think it's Smokey who has like the little orgy where they're smoking right. weed and letting loose. But it, it's not like a cleansing ritual. It becomes this moment where it's, you know, it's fun in the moment. But yeah, the next day they just realize how empty and sad this is and this is their only real release. Um, yeah, so I, any any thoughts on those three kind of tropes in the film? Well, I mean, I am, uh, I mean, I guess there's another fess up. I mean, I'm, I'm not as versed in Schrader as I might be. I've certainly seen Taxi Driver and I'm familiar with like his writing, what did he write, Obsessed, the De Palma film? 
Uh, um, yeah, the the Vertigo kind of. <laughs> right, and the uh, and uh, Last Temptation of Christ, and I believe my dad had Mosquito Coast on VHS, oh, taped I off. I forgot of, he did Mosquito Coast. Taped off of HBO or something. Um, well, one of the things I was thinking of when I went and rewatched uh, rewatched it was not only um, masculinity and violence, which is in here, but also this sort of um, growing hopelessness in which like violence becomes not a way to counteract it, but just to sort of like exercise it, mm. um, which is a thing you see, I think, in different moments in Blue Collar for all three of the main characters who are all sort of failing to live up to their the idea that they, uh, I think, in that sort of like hangover portion of the party, um, uh, Zeke says, I know, I know a man's supposed to be able to take care of his family or something like that. And uh, for Jerry, when he sees that his daughter, he can't pay for his daughter's braces, there are all these moments where he, they are sort of confronting their inability to be the men that they're, they feel like they're supposed to be. Um, and I think you can see that in, or, or, or in a sort of like growing pressure and resentment. You can see that in, say, like Taxi Driver or something like that. Um, but I don't know as much about Schrader as I, as I probably might. Um, although, after watching Blue Collar, I kind of kind of like to. I've, I've only seen maybe three or four of his movies. I've seen Hardcore. I've seen Affliction a really long time ago. And uh, I recently watched Mishima after First Reformed, which is a really interesting film. Uh, biopic of a... <laughs> Japanese writer, um, the, the interesting and problematic approach of Mishima with regard to being a biopic is he is very conscious of not wanting to make a traditional one, and since Mishima wrote these, these different short stories, uh, he'll adapt the different short stories, which are maybe 20 minutes each, and, you know, it's a two-hour film, so you got, like, 80 minutes of adaptation, and then he weaves that in with parallels to Mishima's life. So at the end of the day, I get general character traits of who Mishima was, which is this kind of narcissistic man who may have had... Um, may have been bisexual but wasn't quite sure and very proud um but at the i I couldn't tell you much about like the you know the the specific trajectory of his life because of how far away he goes from that formula so it's a very beautiful film but it's also like if it's your gateway into understanding anything about this person you'll get more of an understanding of the tropes of their art um but yeah so I, i wouldn't exactly say i'm i'm an expert on schrader myself um but yeah like they're the, to get back to that point about masculinity and violence, I, I was thinking about that scene as well where the uh, the coworker they have, we see him at the, the first scene, maybe the second scene, where he's putting the money into the, the Coke machine. Oh, yeah, and It yeah. doesn't work, and the, you know, the, the management guys are like, well, you got to fill out your paperwork and do this and file a claim and call this number, and the guy's just like, you yeah, know, it's like 50 cents. I just want my Coke or my 50 cents back. And by the midpoint of the film, he's so frustrated with the bureaucracy and the monotony, he just drives a forklift into the you know soda machine and destroys it because that's his, like the only thing he can do. I I love that that part and there's there's uh, I as I watched it the first time maybe because I myself have a um, particular sensitivity to the sort of like quotidian indignities of like the workday um, and the way that they can uh, like produce this like 
hatred and rage inside yourself. Uh, I remember when I was on the job market and uh, uh, putting in the paper into the copier so that the like, the I never once remembered how to do it correctly so that like it would print on the letterhead the right way. And I just remember like being in my department office or something like just like well after midnight screaming because I had once again put the copy paper into the into the uh, printer backwards. And um, there's so many moments like this where you see that on the factory floor. So uh, Zeke, for example, he's so pissed about his locker being broken um, and how he's got to stick a ballpoint pen in the locker to open it. But then the ballpoint pen breaks and all this stuff. And uh, when he brings it up to his, uh, not to his uh, steward, but to like the boss of the union, you can see the guy's like, what the what are you bringing this to me for? This is such tiny shit. But those like sort of like everyday wearing indignities on all of these guys just wears on them. And, uh, and you see him carry it. And that, that guy in the, uh, with the forklift, um, that is me. That's, or that's, as our students say, that's a big mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it reminds me of something like office space where they all take that printer right. into the, into the field and just beat it because it's the TPS reports. It's the, it's right. the little things that, yeah, just kind of become this albatross to bear. Um, right. you've got me thinking about, um, the next question and you've seen these already, the questions. So, um, one of the films I kept thinking about while I was seeing it, was um, the Godard Goran films like the uh, British Sounds, the film in which you have, I think it's Engels read over an automotive line while they're building this car, and it's like a 20-minute traveling shot without, you know, it's a long take just going down the line while they're putting this in there. And I was thinking about Godard's aesthetic approach and Schrader's and how in certain ways they overlap. They both use freeze frames and there's these kind of breaks um and yet how in certain ways i thought schrader's film was much more i don't know like i I, it was probably much more productive and fruitful in having a discussion about labor than anything godard would ever make um just given the the way godard makes films and how idiosyncratic and inaccessible they can be and yet they're still kind of speaking the same language about the same issue uh, which at the end of the day is is it's that smoky quote where it's you know that the management is going to use anything they can to make you fight one another, whether it's your race or your your age or how long you've been in the industry mm-hmm. or on the line. You know they're constantly going to find these points of leverage to make it dog eat dog rather than you know bite in the hand that feeds. Yeah, I th- I mean there's a um, I was thinking of this watching the film again before. Uh, we did this about how, uh, if you listen, you sh- helpfully shared that director's commentary um, audio, um, and you'll hear over and over Schrader talking about how, oh yeah, we just had to stick the camera here and, and keep it still because the actors were so uh, were were such a trouble to him. But there are there are definitely stylistic moments in the in the film that are that are quite. Uh, uh, quite adroit. Um, there's he mentions in the that opening scene, which is just amazing. Um, there's references to Eisenstein's Eisenstein's strike, um, and the there's a moment after Zeke uh, sort of calls the bluff of his foreman, where there's a shot where uh, 
Smokey is in a cab and sees uh, Zeke come out of the foreman's office with the cigar. He's sort of like won this conflict and the camera tracks over to the left. And it's just, it's quite, um, quite sophisticated and, and interesting. And I, I always, my, like my, just because I've taught it a zillion times, my association with Paul Schrader is probably uh, above everything else, notes on film noir. And um, so his attention to form there as a scholar, you can sort of see it reflected in his, uh, in the the film he's helming. I'm not sure how collaborative he was with the cinematographer, but I was very interested in the ways that um, those freeze frames and that opening sequence, how they sort of like, focus on the repetitive and sort of like mechanical labor that, that these men are forcing themselves into. And then also those sort of like relations between them. It's, it's in the form in a way that's uh, impressive because I think this is his first, the first film he directed. I, I believe that's that's true, and yeah, as you said, you know, listening to that commentary track, it was really interesting. It didn't strike me as a film that was put together so casually, because he, he notes on the commentary how much uh, Richard Pryor would only be good for, you know, because of his energy, because of his drug intake, he was only good for mm-hmm. a couple takes, and then he would lose it. So he'd be high energy, and he'd be improvising for four or five takes, and then they would have to move on to something else. So he didn't get a lot of options. He didn't get to shoot a lot of coverage. And even at one point, he makes a, a fairly off-color, no pun intended, remark about how even lighting Kytel oh, right. and Yafet Kodo in the frame was problematic because the, the tone of their skin wasn't registering very well on the on the film stock, which I didn't even think about. I thought about that study a couple of years back where they had talked about how Kodak film stock had been marketed predominantly for you know, very, very white people and had been designed for very white people and hadn't thought about that. But, um, yeah, so to, to think about it beforehand, I, I would have thought it was much more rigidly thought out because of the moments like the opening sequence or even just just in terms of how you s- put those scenes in such a sequence where the pivot in tone in the second half works so well. Mm-hmm. And there's also, though, I think there's also ways where, um, this is just occurring to me now, but there are those um, moments with depth. So, uh, spoiler alert, later in the film, these thugs get dispatched from the union bar where people hang out after their shifts are over to go to um, Jerry's house. But Smokey overhears them and he makes places that call to Jerry's wife. Um, and he's in the foreground on the left side of the frame, and these these uh, kneecappers are in, in the background on the right side of the frame. It's this really nice play of um, depth of field and the sort of uh, danger between them that I that I noted and thought, oh, there there's a little bit of uh, reaching back into cinema history there too, in a way that was interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, two of the other sequences that kind of come to mind also are like his use of sound where he removes sound during the the heist and removes it i think when um spoiler alert again hopefully you've seen it when they kill Smokey in the uh the the accident I, i'm not sure there's actually any music on the soundtrack in either of those moments 
and it really kind of heightens the tension in this way uh, in the first moment and then is diluted by their costumes and the kind of physical comedy of the scene and especially the moment after where they're interviewing the guard and he's like well one of them had you know it was like an oreo cookie i can't remember how he describes the the way that people were standing there were two black guys and a white guy in the middle um and the white guy had an arrow through arrow his head, through his yeah. head. <laughs> and that's all i can remember and then you you get that moment later and you almost i, I don't know if you had the same i, I knew it was going to happen um, because one of the reasons I was drawn to watching Blue Collar is it came up on a list of films with the most radical tone breaks. And it hmm. was like this, yeah, it was like it was up there with like Full Metal Jacket, where it's like, yeah, there's a severe shift in tone with one scene. And I wonder, having not known that, if I would have read the scene in the, the painting stall the same way, because it's the same kind of technique. Let's take the sound out, let's make it suspenseful. But there's not that obvious kind of, comedic release at the end of it and it becomes this very paranoid film at the end of the day um when jerry's kind of you know worried about the fbi and you know kind of mm -hmm. starts confiding in them um and uh there's that kind of car chase car wreck thing going on that scene where Smokey dies is interminably long it is so long and so uncomfortable and i don't uh, it, that's just how it feels to me i don't it would be interesting to go back and actually look to the length of it um, but I do, uh, you get just that industrial noise um, and all of the it's interesting because in the first few wait, times you see the uh, the line, the work of the factory, you always get that blues riff. It's that cover of uh, the I'm a man, the muddy waters. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember who's who the covers by. But so the the uh, the industrial work through the first like half of the film is always associated with uh uh, this like particular set of musical uh, cues, and then when it gets to the point where um, Smokey is in the painting stall and is you know set up to die, it's totally silent except for this like drowning industrial noise, which does some work for the scene. I think not only tonally but also the sort of like commentary on the the violence that's obscured just through through the operation of uh, through the industrial operation. Um, which I thought was very, it, there is, there, I, I hadn't thought of it as a movie with a great tonal shift, but there it is for sure. Yeah, to me, it's like I, one of the questions I'd proposed to you before we talked was like, what two scenes encapsulate the film for you? And it's it's really those two for me, because I think the heist scene, although the, the scene with Richard Pryor getting one over on the IRS guy is pretty funny too, but like the heist scene, to me, just the physical comedy and the escalation of it, how it will go from being, let's use the the dirt to see the lasers or the breath or whatever they do. Right. It's kind of, it starts off kind of James Bondy and smart and then kind of becomes this comedic set piece by the end with because the mask. The, because the safe's not even locked, right? It's, they, they, they're ducking under the lasers, but then the safe is unlocked and there's $600 in there. <laughs> and then the thing and, with the, oh, the other part is the watches too, where Smokey has, you know, gotten these, cheap watches and tries to pawn them off on the other guys just the same way he had gotten played earlier on which is, is right. kind of great because it plays back into how the film ultimately ends which is it, it is going to be this you know dog eat dog situation where you know there's there isn't this cohesion amongst the the working class there you know it, it's there but it's very superficial and you know moment by moment where you know he's still going to take advantage of the situation if it's you know there or when they're doing the uh, rock scissors paper about who's going to pay for the car repairs with the fuel pump or whatever's broken in it 
which is you know course, that's very that's very interesting because those watches they he buys those watches so they can synchronize the times and because they're so cheap they don't work and that's why they that's why the the guard is is there because none of them knew what time it was um so there's there's probably quite a lot in in the operation of those watches those fake cartier watches well even the Um, whole heist if we if we think about like the different symbols there right so the watches right their whole day is dictated by time and breaks right so that mm -hmm. it doesn't work when they're on their free time or anything like that or the car the thing that they build is not reliable Right? That's this, right. This product that they that they have for themselves just it's not nearly of the same caliber or strength because they can't afford the very product that they make. Wow, that's the, yeah, that's that's absolutely true, um, and it sort of shows the degree to which the their idea of the operation they're running is like you know quite literally when when they're there with the masks it's absurd, um, and but. It's also absurd in a sort of like more fundamental way because they are stealing their own union from their own union. They are they are very much taking their own money um, and hampering their ability to like for the union to operate in the future. So it's absurd in a sort of like comic way, but it's also absurd in a sort of tragic way as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that brings me to this I, this kind of concept or question like what do we make of the film's ideology because it is kind of trying to have it both ways by indicting the union and the management um but also in ways that are very real of course um when we go back and look at somebody like jimmy hoffa or uh the ties between organized labor and organized crime how do you how do you feel about that uh so this is this is the question in my wheelhouse right now because as as you know i'm i'm working on all these uh post-industrial films. Um, I think that this film is uh, more representative of the mood um, within like industrial work than probably most, uh, probably any, I'm trying to think of any of the other like Rust Belt films that I can really imagine. Um, so just a couple things to, to think about just historically where where um, auto manufacturing was like in the mid to late 70s. So um, you have from like the 50s to the early 70s, U.S. oil consumption triples, right? So this, this entire sort of automotive industry is riding this huge wave. But by 1972, you have... Um, the like the beginnings of the OPEC crisis and you have European uh, manufacturing of like sort of gas efficient cars, right? Which is the first kind of major crack in the edifice of the UAW's bargaining power. Um, But like by, so you, you know, I don't know if you, if you know what to pay attention to um, Jerry in the movie is wearing a hat that says 30 and out. And that is, this was an amazing uh, sort of concession gained by the United Auto Workers so that you could retire after 30 years of service with a full pension and benefits. Oh. So, uh, so that means if you got a job out of high school, like lots of no kids did at 18, you were retired at 48, right? And this was a thing that, that I believe that was like um, 
granted in 1970. Um, and the UAW by 78, 79 had gotten, uh, almost, I think they had just, uh, Jerry in the movie mentions that we went out for 70 days on a strike and yeah. we got our pay raises. Um, there were all kinds of, the UAW was extremely powerful and got all sorts of concessions. By 1978, 79, they were halfway to an automatic four-day work week. They, so you had every other Friday off. Um, so the labor, the organizing power behind the UAW was immense. Um, and essentially created middle class um, lifestyles for entire generation of people, particularly in the industrial Midwest. Um, but with the reduction, uh, the raising price of oil and the the incursion of um, gas efficient imported cars. Um, and also the sort of like increased pressure by the federal government on union work, you started to see the sort of like cracks in UAW's control of the industry. And you also had the rise of Sunbelt states as manufacturing um, uh, uh, sites, um, which had fewer worker protections, um, lower cost of living, um, and because the industrial northeast had produced uh, air conditioning, um, you could do industrial production in the south um, for lower costs. So uh, lots of these lots of these plants, uh, auto working plants, rubber plants, steel mills started through it through the late mid 1970s to the late uh, to the late 1980s were not just closing, but actually moving south to right-to-work states, right? So, and there's, there are ways in which you could see in the sort of like historical literature of the 70s and 80s that people see it coming, hmm. but they're in for theirs. So there's this moment later in the film after, uh, where uh, uh, Zeke says to an older coworker, another black coworker, uh, you're a hypocrite. If I got fired, you wouldn't have said anything because you've got your 18 years, right? And so if he's 18 years, that means he's got 12 more until a full pension, full retirement, right? And a lot of these guys see they're not, they're not, they're not updating the factory. They're not expanding production. We have fewer orders, whatever. And they see that like the down the line, their factory is not going to be uh, around anymore. And so there was a lot of internal tension within the union organizations through all these sorts of things. So, um, and there was also internal on age. So like Ed Begley Jr. clearly plays like a sort of like younger college educated labor worker. And there was all sorts within the UAW and within other unions attitudes towards the Vietnam War, towards civil rights or all these things fractured the internal solidarity of the unions. And you see this in the movie from the very, very beginning where you'll see solidarity between coworkers. So it's could be Jerry and Zeke, or it could be just two other sort of anonymous guys on the lines, or there's even women who are punching in in the beginning of the movie. And you see the, the manager come through and just sort of like, just needle them in different ways, right? He asks one black uh, auto worker, 
because he picks cotton that slow, right? And you can see there's all of these sort of like wedges being ins inserted into that solidarity, which was the strength of like essentially industrialized labor. Um, but it, industrialized labor in the United States was always being sort of wedged apart, which is that sort of refrain that Smokey says right around halfway through the movie and then comes back in a perhaps unnecessary voiceover at the end about their goal is to keep you on the line and they're going to uh, split you any any way that they can. The young folks versus the old timers, the blacks against the whites, all that stuff, right? So um, that's in the air in, the, in unionized labor in the 70s. And you can see it sort of like in the film, um, that sense of dissipating solidarity and the threat that that means. So that means, yeah, I, I didn't even cross my mind to think about air conditioning that way. It's the tragedy of Syracuse, actually. So Syracuse was the head for carrier air conditioning. And uh, so the success of carrier air conditioning enabled the moving not only of, of carrier carriers. air conditioning, but also a bulk of American industrial production to the Sunbelt states. Wow. So how does blue collar, you've talked a little bit about specifically what you're looking at with regard to labor and Rust Belt, but what is like a Rust Belt film to you? What, what are you seeing over and, and over again in these films uh, that aren't necessarily maybe explicitly about labor? Well, I would say it's interesting to, to sort of put this together. Um, because I would say that, uh, blue collar, like the deer hunter, um, these movies predate the, the sort of popular conception of the term rust belt. That term really doesn't start to get used until 83, 84. Um, and, but so like the deer hunter, these films don't suggest that the sort of economic function of steel or automotives or whatever is in any way in danger. Um, so there's the after the, the, the image I always remember from blue collar is the Chrysler sign ticking over right after Smokey dies um, that, you know, we've now just produced our 11 billionth car for this year or whatever. Um, and that's very much to me like the end of um, the deer hunter in which the, the vets go back to the mill, right? The mill's not closing. Um, now, there's a sort of like spiritual rot in the plant and in the mill at the end of the deer hunter, but there's no sense of economic precarity, not in the same way. But by the, by the mid-80s, by the mid uh, so 83, there's a spate of films. So, um, all the right moves, uh, that's a film in which the, the steel mills in, in Johnstown are closing. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains starts in Johnstown. Um, and then you get gung ho RoboCop, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> major league, um, these are films in which uh, the, 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 there's either the goal is for the lead person to get out of this dead end town. So that's what Flashdance is about, right? I got to get out of here. Sure. Um, that's what All the Right Moves is about. Um, 
or it's a sense of like, we can get it back. That's what gung ho is about. We can, you know, the American worker can make a better car or whatever. Um, but there's a, a much, the, the focus on the sort of like economic precarity isn't in blue collar to the same degree. You get a sense of that the union is not being honest, um, but not that the union is going to collapse or the industry is going to collapse. Um, so that's a different part of this. And there's no sense of, but I mean, I would say blue collar is much more sort of politically focused rather than these sort of like, you know, follow your dreams and dancing or football or baseball can get you out of the Rust Belt and, you know, fuck everybody else who has to stay. Um, so I would say this one is much more sort of it's, it's edge at the end is to look at the way that these people are being manipulated, not because they are like intrinsically like, so Jerry is not, we never see him throughout the film have any sort of like racial animus Mm. until the very end when it is all racial invective. Right. So Jerry as like a, you know, like white working class guy, we see him, continually engage in like acts of fraternity and and solidarity throughout the film until he is manipulated into like the expression of racism at the end. I would just not to say like, you know, pity the poor racists of middle of America, but the the film is very much, I I think in that speech that Smokey gives in the beginning, he says like, it's, you know, it's never about the politics, it's the money. Right. And that these sort of cultural issues are made to keep you on the line. And I think in that way, this is a much more, um, it's a much more engaged film than say like this sort of like elegiac or mournful, like woe for the Rust Belt kind of, uh, tone that you might get in another kind of film or like you can make your way out that you would get in eight mile or wonder boys or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's a that's a great kind of I think note to end on. Anything you want to tease coming up with new projects? Any uh, anything you're working on? When can we see your your book coming out? I still have to write it. Um, so uh, I think I'm spending this summer. I'm gonna do a little bit of traveling. I'm gonna go to. Um, I got an NEH grant to go to my beloved hometown of Pittsburgh. And to do some research into the operation of um, a couple public-private partnerships, um, one being the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust and another being the Pittsburgh Film Office, to understand, I mean, this is, I guess, the next stage, a generation after Blue Collar in, in, in the project, is to think about the ways that Rust Belt films have turned to film production as a site for both economic and cultural development. So in a weird way, the same, um, so Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, um, have all heavily invested in developing a, a film and media production infrastructure and, um, and their state governments have all invested tax incentives to try to bring, so Batman or Avengers or, um, concussion <laughs> and all kinds of all kinds of films right and it's an interesting inversion of the process by which um, sunbelt states lured industrial production away from northern industrial states now these post-industrial 
uh, Rust Belt cities are doing the same thing to uh, traditional sites of cultural production. So getting production out of L.A. means you can offer greater tax incentives, your union contracts aren't as um, generous, and so it's an interesting sort of like inversion of the industrial uh, process that happened a generation before is trying to get more film runaway film production to come to, you know, whether it's the post-industrial cities like Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, um, or whether it's Atlanta or New Orleans. Um, and uh, a thing that I'm interested in is not only the economic impacts, so these tax credits are, it's questionable as to whether the tax credits make sense for the state, but to think about how do cities that are associated because of movies like Blue Collar or because of RoboCop or because of 8 Mile are associated with decline, how do you rebrand them as new sites of cultural production? So everybody says like, oh yeah, Pittsburgh's the Portland of the East Coast or whatever. Um, and and how, to, how does film become a process of us learning how to understand a city? Um, that's the thing I'm working on next. That's fantastic. Well, I'll keep my eyes peeled for it. Thank you so much, Michael, for spending your afternoon with me and talking about Blue Collar. And, uh, Thank you, Drew. This was a lot of fun and uh, lots of luck. From, I'm looking forward to hearing other episodes. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll let you pick the movie next time and uh, we can okay. maybe do a musical or something. That was Michael Dwyer speaking to me about Blue Collar. Um, I hope you enjoyed the listen. Next time around, I'm going to be speaking with Nicole Alvarado, a database coordinator at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, about Brian De Palma's blowout, uh, just in time for the 4th of July holiday. So I hope you join us again, and you can follow me at The Cinema Doctor on Twitter for new podcast news, and I will see you at the movies. Thank you.